0: Well, it's good to see you today. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Less than seven days away, so it's uh, coming towards us real quick. And we've been going through the Advent season, as you heard Josh talk about here just recently, four weeks to prepare ourselves to celebrate the arrival, the coming of Jesus. And what I like about Advent is it puts us in a rhythm. It puts us in a rhythm of anticipation and celebration, of Emmanuel. And that's something we need so much to kind of sit in that reality as it kind of draws nearer to us. And, and so I always kind of think when we're going through Advent, I, I always kind of have that song from John Lennon and Yoko Ono. You know that, so this is Christmas, and what have we done? But I think of Advent, and I go, so this is Advent. And what have we—I don't sing, if you haven't figured that out. But um, the reason why I use that is because we want to look back across the other three weeks of Advent and look at those aspects of hope, peace, and joy, because those are heartbeats that are going. They're, They're beats of that rhythm, of that anticipation, that as we've slowed down to focus on a moment, we focus on the moment of the one thing that matters, on Jesus and we're longing for Jesus. We're longing for his kingdom. And we need that rhythm to put ourselves in these solid places, to establish ourselves, to find foundation. And so a few weeks ago, Pastor Judah walked us through the concept and the theme of hope and this aspect about not wishing, but telling us that there is one who is there and seeing where we place our focus and that our hope. Our our real hope is Jesus, that Jesus gives real hope. And he talked about how our hope can become active. And then the weekend after that, Pastor Brian walked us through the theme of peace. And as we walked through that aspect of uncertainty and waiting that tends to happen, that we can have peace while we're in the process. And he talked about how the promise of peace can be something that rules our hearts and rules our day-to-day. And then last weekend, Pastor Lance walked us through the theme of joy and how joy is the greater happiness, that it eclipses the lesser trial, and that joy is directly tied to the level of hope that you have and the person that you have it in. And he talked about how we can have a joyful spirit that's practical in its reality. And so as we go through each of those heartbeats, we now get to the word love and this theme of love. And as we hit that word, our heartbeat increases. It should beat faster as the arrival comes. Because it's here that we encounter God and we encounter others in meaningful ways. And love is kind of like the last piece of a frame that you have around a picture. That we've talked about peace, hope, and joy, but it's when we get to love that it completes this full picture so that we can see God's love in Jesus. That we learn that we are equipped to love because God first loved us. And so we seek out of this to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, and to live a life of love for others. And so what I want you to do with me tonight is I want you to walk with me for about 30 minutes and see the rhythm of love that are in the Christmas stories, to see the rhythm that's in the narrative and to see how it comes out. Because one of the things we forget and that we have to remember is that Christmas actually identifies two births. Now, obviously, we focus on the greatest one, on Jesus, but the story itself naturally has one birth that is the preparation for another, and we can't miss that. It's the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist, and so if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter one, and I'm going to kind of do like a summary kind of paraphrase walkthrough of verses five to twenty-five. Because I just want to go through the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and how this prepares us for the, the, the centerpiece, the birth of Jesus and the love that we see there. And so it talks about a couple, Zechariah, who's from the line of Abijah. And from Abijah, he's one of the priests that works in the temple. And his wife is from one of the daughters of the, of the line of Aaron, which is the high priesthood. And so Zechariah has access to go and work in the temple. And to go work near the presence of God. And, and so in the story, you're gonna find that their, their their circumstances, their environment is a bridge between the past and the covenant of Israel and the present with what God is about to do, and what he's about to instill with Jesus. And, and so it kind of tells us a little bit about the story that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they're barren, they're not able to have children right? And it kind of adds a little piece. It's not only that she's barren, but she's also hit that age that it's no longer appropriate for a woman to have children, which is just a scriptural translation of she's old, right? Which which is hard for them and they've been praying about this. And then it tells us a little bit about how he goes to minister in the temple and that he's able to be selected by lot to go in and minister in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the kind of the inner court of what God's presence is encapsulated in. And, and so what would happen that, that a lot of history and the Talmud talks about is they would actually be selected by lot and you would only get selected by lot if you hadn't gone and served in the temple yet. So often a priest would only get a chance to go into that holy place twice in their whole life. And so we don't know if this is Zechariah's first or second time, but he's getting a chance to go into the nearest point of the presence of God at least how Israel understood it. And so he goes in, and as we read their story, we recall that this angel appears right to the the right side of the altar of incense because inside that place, there's the table of showbread, there's the menorah, the, the light, the candles, and then there's the altar of incense. And he was going in there to lift up praises and prayers for Israel. And as he's doing that, an angel, Gabriel, appears right to the right of the altar. And you have to remember, the last time we've seen Gabriel is he's talking to Daniel in the book of Daniel, a time when people are in exile in Israel's history and they're trying to figure out what God is doing and how he's going to do it. And Gabriel appears, and what he ends up communicating to Zechariah is something so powerful because he helps him to see that God is watching, God is hearing, and God is is there in their barrenness and need. And, and so he's going to give this message about how they've, God has heard the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's there and he's going to be present and that they're going to have this son that's going to be called John the Baptist that we're going to learn a little bit later. And as it's going through, it's going to give us some really profound words. If you look at verse 15, this is what the angel says to him. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And listen to this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and then this is the part I love the most, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's some pretty powerful stuff. And here, you're hearing that he's gonna function in this power and the spirit of Elijah. But look at this change that he's gonna bring in the nation of Israel and in people. These are all themes of repentance. This is what all the people of Israel wanted to see happen in their nation and at a heart level in their people. And he says first in verse 16 that the children of Israel are gonna turn back to the Lord. That's what everybody wanted. But even more, It's gonna happen down in a restorative way on a family level. That the hearts of the father are gonna turn to the children. That this caring and acting on their behalf is gonna happen again within families that were divided, within families that were struggling, within families that were writhing under a life led by the Roman Empire. And I think part of what's happening with that promise is that this is something God himself is gonna do for Israel. That his heart is turned to his children. But that effect is gonna leave an effect in the families, that the hearts of the fathers and mothers and kids are gonna turn to one another. But even more so, the disobedient are gonna turn to the wisdom of the just. Wickedness, that desire to live in rebellion is gonna submit and yield again the way it's supposed to be. And so altogether the angel's telling him they're gonna turn, this child's gonna turn their attention back to God in love. And you're gonna be able to turn to one another in love, in perfect love. You're gonna see God's action. You're gonna see his activity of love. And this is gonna prepare people for the greatest advent, the greatest coming in Jesus. Now, of course, Zechariah, like many people that have encountered angels in Israel, he starts asking some questions because he's a little thrown off. And what does Gabriel tell him? Okay, now you're gonna to have to be quiet for a while and watch God work and he's gonna be mute. He's not gonna be able to speak and he's gonna come out and they're gonna be like, what's going on? And he's gonna be signaling to them. And I want you to just think for a moment of all those months of silence, right? Cause he's gonna go home and then she's gonna become pregnant. Nine months of not talking, nine months of wanting to express your love to God and you can't speak out loud. As a priest, that means he can't work in the temple. He can't speak words of love and affirmation to his wife. He has to learn how to do that all through just physical activity. And he has to be quiet for a while and watch God work, reflecting, trying to live out love. And, and what's happening in some of this is that the message that Zechariah and Elizabeth received is the same situation It's it's recalling the same situation that Israel was in back in Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham and Sarah, and he goes, you're going to have a child. And that child is going to be offspring that just multiplies, and there's going to be blessing, and it's going to bless the nations and bless the world. Well, now it's a recall back to that, a barren wife, a promise from God, and that God's loving promise is going to reengage with Israel. His love is not changed, and his love is still there. Now, of course, this is going to happen with Jesus, but John is there preparing the way. Well, if you look more in the story at verse 24, it's going to tell you that his wife is going to become pregnant, and then she's going to remain in seclusion for five months. She's going to disappear. She's going to do her own shelter in place. Sorry, I know it's still raw. She has to go, and what's weird about this whole passage is that she's gonna go into seclusion and we don't hear about Zachariah again until the day of circumcision. And there's a lot that the narrator could be doing there that's mysterious. He's separating this couple out, that it's perhaps that they're not even spending time together. In verse 57, which we're gonna read here in a little bit, it's gonna note that she bears a son, but it's not gonna say that they bear a son. It's not gonna say that he's present. The whole text is trying to leave this mystery where you're going, what is the narrator trying to do to build the suspense and show us what God is doing in this story? What is he going to do with this one that's preparing the way? And Elizabeth, of course, is going to rejoice. She's going to be seeing this favor that's being shown on her as the object of God's love. And they're both going to learn how to love God in great disappointment while seeing his faithful love occurring in their lives. This is a love that comes to turn his creation into people of love again. So jump over now to verses 57 to 64. I'm going to be all through chapters 1 and 2. If you go over to one fifty-seven to 64, we're going to move from the promise to the fulfillment of the event. Because it's going to move us towards her having the baby. And in verse 58, it's going to tell us, that her friends and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and that they rejoiced with her. You have this preview of celebration and expectation that they're seeing in this story. And then you get eight more days, and now it's the circumcision, the brisk, right? And there, Zachariah is present. And as he's present, Elizabeth is holding the child, and they say, what do you want to name him? Do you want to call him Zachariah Jr.? And she's like, no, we're gonna call him John. Yohanan, which means in Hebrew, God is gracious. And they're all like, well, that's not a family name. You can't, why are you doing that? And so they ask Zachariah, and he like signals to them to give him something to write on, and he writes down, his name will be John. And the moment he declares that, that God is gracious, the name of John, his lips are loosened. And can you imagine being there in the moment? where he's sitting there and he starts speaking love and expression over the child, over his wife Elizabeth. And he goes on, and we don't have time to cover it here, but if you read verses 68 to 79, he gives this prayer of blessing and love to God. They're words worth chewing on. I encourage you to go and read it after this message. And he rejoices in what God's doing. And as everyone's hearing all this and seeing this, it says in verse 66, everyone's wondering, what then would this child be? And so the the text is building this wonder and it's building this anticipation. And then it even finishes before that blessing. It says, for indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. Speaking of John. And so what you find in this first birth story is that God is on the move and the context of love is framing the hope and the peace and the joy that's gonna happen in the actual birth narrative of Jesus and this story is heightening the significance of Advent, and it shows us that what is going to happen, the love that is coming is gonna be so great that God is doing things beforehand to prepare for it. And that's exciting. I, I kind of thought about it a little bit as in the context of a wedding, where when the groom is standing in the front of the room and they're looking and waiting for the bride to come through and you have the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and their friends, but the groom doesn't care about looking at any of them. And then you have the two little kids, sometimes more, right? That come down, the, the ring bearer, the flower girl, and you know they're, they're preparing the way for the bride. And it's always cuter the younger they are and the more they wander. And those kids come, but again, they're just a preparation for the real love and the real one that everyone wants to see. And that's what's happening with this birth story is that John's story is the, the, the ring bearer. <laughs> He's the flower girl that's coming before to celebrate what's about to come. But but let's jump backwards a little bit now. Go Go to Luke chapter one, verse 27. Let's talk a little bit about Mary and Joseph. Because the first birth story we just read is in the temple of Jerusalem to Israel near the presence of God. But now we're gonna move to a small town in Galilee, a place called Nazareth. And you're gonna see that love is preceding the story there. A, ch- a town that often was just called branch town. That's what Nazareth means, et. the house or the town of the branch. And it's going off of a passage in the book of Isaiah that talks about how a branch will shoot up from the root of Jesse, from the line of David. And it's there that this young girl, Mary, and Joseph meet. And this is a small town. A lot of scholars reckon it only had 100, and 100 to 150 people most likely all of them extended family and, and kin. And in, this, and in this place, it's a small town that's not known. When you look at what Josephus, one historian says, he lists 45 towns in the region of Galilee and he never mentions Nazareth. And then later there's a thing called the Talmud, which is the collected writing that Jewish rabbis gave in the ancient world. And they mentioned 63 towns in the Galilee region and Nazareth isn't listed. It's the middle of nowhere town that no one really cares about. It's the Chowchilla of Israel. And most likely, a lot of people believe that the people that lived in Nazareth in the first, temp- first century period grew up, some of them maybe in some houses that were constructed of basalt stone, but a lot of them lived in caves. There's a lot of caves in that area. In fact, when we go on our Israel study tours, we go out to the precipice of Nazareth where Jesus was gonna be thrown off when the people got all mad at him, and then he kind of like, Breaks out of the crowd. And right below that precipice right there is one of the most ancient caves in Israel that has bone remains from back to 15,000 years ago, the Neolithic era. You're like, who cares? (laughs) Well, it's in this town that you have a teenage bride that likely grew up possibly in a cave-like home. marries, or sorry, is betrothed to a local man that's likely her elder. Is almost certainly illiterate with no formal education. She's most likely a member of the Anoim, which is the poor in Israel, but she's one that possibly knew the good things that come out of Nazareth. Things like loving parents and kind neighbors, people who walk humbly with their God and people that watch for good things to grow or even for old things or even old cut off stumps to grow again. And, And so it's this place that this young girl in 127 is betrothed to this guy, Joseph. And that betrothal is a a pledge to be married, right? It's the engagement, but how it worked in the ancient world is the husband would, you know, most likely have some type of friendship relationship with the woman and he would go, I wanna marry her. He would go talk to his dad who would talk to her dad. They would make a little bit of a deal and they were betrothed. And now what happened is they would have not a year of premarital counseling, They had a year where he went to prepare the home, that he would go to his family's house and often build walls attached to his family home for them to live into. And it wasn't until he was done building that he could go and get his wife and bring her, and she had to be ready every day for him to show up and let's go get married. Well, it's in that period, we don't know how long, that in that betrothal, the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to her, right? And obviously gives the message about Jesus and she becomes pregnant. Now, in that period, for her to become pregnant, this is a scandalous scenario. You have to put yourself there with Joseph. Even with her giving the message of the angel, you know what it looks like. You know what everybody in your town that most likely knows you will think. And it's only in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that we know that Joseph was going to try to find a way to dismiss this betrothal that the angel appears to him and says, take Mary as your wife. And you have to reckon with this compassion and this love versus revenge or anger that would have been appropriate in such a scandal. And Joseph, without speaking, just goes and shows this love and this compassion and takes her to be his wife. Well, let's fast forward now to Luke chapter two, verse seven because Luke 2, seven now takes us still in the period where in Luke two, it's gonna tell us that they're still only betrothed when they're on their way to Bethlehem and they're gonna to go to Bethlehem and they're gonna go and you're gonna see the story slow down enough before you go run to the shepherds and the angelic host giving a message, you're gonna see it slow down and we get a chance to see love at that moment of Mary holding Jesus in her arms, wrapping him and placing him in a manger. And what I like about when you get to this part of the story is that we're getting a chance to grasp the human dimension of a divine moment that's saturated with God. This is the presence of our God on earth. And I love that Luke takes the attention by the Spirit to give care to those details of he's wrapped in cloths, he's lying in a food trough, And that's gonna become important because later when the angels speak to the shepherds, what do they tell them? You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And he takes that time, but I don't think it's just a connecting point for the shepherds. I think Luke's also trying to get his readers to come into the moment and go, be there with us. She gives birth and there's that joy And that love, as the child comes, as she's placed on the chest, most likely of Mary, I don't know if he was crying, I don't know if he was giggling, I don't know if he was cooing, but there's that moment where love is being exuded from God and humanity for the very first time on a physical level. I I like what you end up seeing when you study this a little bit, where when when a mom gives birth, her brain releases all these chemicals, one of the big ones being oxytocin. And when oxytocin is released, that chemical creates a greater drive for attachment. And then at the same time, when a child is born, automatically its brain is releasing oxytocin because the child is meant to attach to the one that just gave birth. And to imagine, again, those chemicals... And that love that's being exuded. And even Joseph is there, right? The father is there getting a chance to enjoy and participate in that. Now, obviously, I'm a male. I cannot speak personally from this example. But we've had two of our staff recently that they had babies. And so I asked them, I said, hey, can you please tell me how it's felt? Not the pain. (laughs) Tell me how it's felt to re-experience love again with a newborn. And this is some of what they shared and I, and I value it so deeply. One of them wrote, it's a love so deep it changes you and all of your relationships. Suddenly everything is shifted in such a beautiful way. Another one of the ladies wrote, it's a love that invites me to learn, to lean into more of who God created me to be. And I was like, wow, like I, I wouldn't even go there in my mind. Another one of the ladies wrote, It gives me an increased capacity for love. It doesn't take away love from anyone. That love is just multiplied through the family. It's not that she was saying, I stopped loving my husband or my other firstborn. It's just that now that love is multiplied and there's even more because there's another life there in front of us. Another one of the ladies said, my family feels more complete and whole. It didn't feel lacking before, but it totally feels complete now. And then lastly, there's this new discover, discovery of personality and new things to love about other family members. Seeing how this new love changes everyone around me. And I love that because when, when we focus in on the scene at Christmas and you see Mary and Joseph and the baby, you realize that there is a level of love that we don't focus on enough in this story because of how powerful it is but it has nothing to do with the environment. It doesn't have to do with the manger. It doesn't have to do with the stable. It's the child inside of this rough, non-ideal, small town village of Bethlehem. It's the center of God's love resting in the hands of a woman and a man. And that's powerful. The moment that Jesus came into the world is a time that we can stop looking at how hard and how non-ideal things were. And to stop looking at the pain and to look at the delays we have. And it's a time when we can stop and we can see the life that changes our lives. To not just pay attention to the circumstances or the environment, but pay attention to what came, who came, because God showed himself in Jesus. And so if you're doing the fill in the blank, this is what it says We hold the love of God in our hands. I think Christmas invites us to be there, just like Mary had a chance to hold Jesus for the first time. We have a chance to hold the love of God in our hands. But while that's happening, we see that His love is holding us. And I absolutely believe Mary understood that. I am holding the King of Kings, I am holding my God in my hands. And yet he is the one that has been holding all of us. And his love is what is shaping us. And I love what Mary does with this because she has intentional reflection and puts all these pieces together throughout her story. Because when we speak of Mary, the mother of Jesus, I want to remind you or reveal to you for the first time the interesting dynamic of how Mary was there from before the manger to the cross, to the resurrection, and you find her in the book of Acts with the disciples on the day of Pentecost. That's amazing. She was an eyewitness to the myriad of promises that were fulfilled and carried out with her son, Jesus. She had the longest knowledge, however simple or complex, of what God was doing. And I think that she understood in a more unique and complex way than the disciples of who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. And a few different times in her story, in chapter 2, verse 19, and also chapter 2, verse 51, you're going to see that as things happen in the story, it will tell us that Mary pondered and treasured these things, that she was taking it in. And really quickly, just to help you understand that, to ponder things in the ancient world was a spiritual CSI. (laughs) It was a weighing things, trying to assemble everything that you had, all those details, and put it into an understandable whole. What in the world is God doing? What does this mean? And so she was deeply reflecting and taking all of her thoughts and her doubts and the words and the actions and seeing how everything lined up. And I think she used those memories to warm her affections to what God was doing. And I'm sure she was remembering a lot of those promises and things as she sat there and stared at the cross while she watched him suffer and die. But it tells us that she also treasured these things. And that word treasured is this idea of con- continually keeping or guarding something for duration. You want to get the full value out of it, so you watch it thoroughly. And she's doing that with all these details. And so Mary was front and center. And you have to remember, she gets a message from an angel telling her that she's highly favored. She gets a message from an angel that's such a special honor. But she also goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, who tells her that there's a prophecy for her, and her own son John leaps in the womb. She has Joseph's dream. She has the shepherds coming in and reporting what they see with the angels. They go to have Jesus circumcised and a guy named Simeon and a woman named Anna come and lay prophecies over Jesus again. She has magi show up at her house and give gifts. And even by the time Jesus is a young teen, he gets lost on the way to the temple or the way back. And he ends up telling her that he's doing his father's work. And even then it says, and she treasured all these things. And so at the very end, you have Mary in Acts 1.14. After watching the crucifixion, after seeing him after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended, it tells us that we find the 11 disciples and the women that followed Jesus and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they're all together praying and waiting for the filling of the Holy Spirit. A lot of scholars suggest that she was there when you go into chapter 2 when Pentecost happens that the same people that are there in chapter 1 praying and awaiting what God's going to do are there in chapter 2 ready and Mary possibly gets to be witness to something that would have went back how many years we don't know 30 something to her hearing a message from an angel about what God was about to do and she gets to watch it that's awesome I think she knew who Jesus was before anyone else did because she was the very first person to whom God chose to reveal his identity. She was the first one to see her see him with her eyes, the first one to hear him with her ears. But I think she would tell us if she could stand here in front of us that who the baby was is nothing compared to who Jesus is now. Because he is our savior. He is our Lord. He's our King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the lover of his creation. He's the one that gave his life. And so I look at all this and I go, what can we learn? What can we learn from all these people that engaged with this unfolding story of Jesus? And what do we do with the full story of Jesus? Do we just account it again, recount it like we do every year? How did they understand love and how do we live out love? And that's where I wanna talk about the implications of all this. I wanna talk about how do we live out the activity of love by what we see started in the Christmas story. Because we all can agree that you will remember some years more than others. There's good years, there are bad years. I'm sure you're gonna remember 2020 differently than other years. But what will it be known for? Will it be known for love? To you? By you? around you. I really pray and I hope that we can finish it as a year of experiencing love of showing love and that in these last couple last days before the year ends that love will frame it. And Josh read for us John 3:16, which is part of the reality that we come back to Again and again and again, and Christmas reminds us of it, but it's not the only place, but that God so loved the world, he so loved us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish or should not perish, but have eternal life. And we have to keep renewing our understanding and our knowledge of God's love and what it means for living out our faith. Christian love must not be seen as an option for those who just kind of like doing the love encouragement thing. It is something that all of us live out of as we encounter the love of Jesus. This is not another season that we want to go through just the motions of the season. We don't want to do all the holiday things and expect the same thing to happen this year. We have to live intentionally with love across our Christmas practice, across our year practice, across our lives. Not just warm feelings, but attitudes and actions. And so this always makes me ask the question, how do you feel loved at Christmas? How do you help others to experience love? We have to stir on these things. And if you're like me, and I hope you're not, maybe you've struggled with this, this entire year. I know I have. And I feel like it's only in the last few months that I've started coming out of a fog, coming out of a haze, and learning again how to show and live this love. And if I can share with you just a couple things I've learned to close us, I think it's a good valuable challenge for us as we go forward. Because love means to have an interest in one another. It means to have concern, to have compassion, to seek after the good and welfare of people. God is already showing his love and he invites us to participate with him in it. And it starts with us often just having to identify the needs, to not ignore the things that we sometimes see right in front of us, with the people around us, with the posts that we read, with the things that are going on in our, in our job, in our families, and everywhere else. And we don't just See them and then move on. We have to see and act. Francis Chan says in one of his most popular books, Crazy Love, he says, lukewarm Christians are people that will be moved by stories of radical love, but they will not act themselves. We don't wanna just hear that somebody did something really loving and encouraging and go, oh, that's quaint, that's sweet, that's awesome, amen. We wanna be people that go and do that that go and express that love. And that means taking time to know others deeper. It means listening to people a lot more, living open-eared and opened eyes with an alert common sense, paying attention to the lives of people, having the readiness for other people, sorry, the readiness to do anything for other people and their needs. And knowing that you are just a spiritual funnel. God is the one that will provide for their needs. You're just there as a funnel to direct it. We also have to learn how to forgive. Because there's so many things we hold on to and we have to learn how to remove judgment. Because the act of love will take us sometimes in the opposite direction of our feelings. Because I may dislike someone and still choose to lay down my life for them. I may choose to love them even if I don't feel like it. And that's because the motivation for our service is not so I look good, is not just so that they can have something. The motivation of our love is Christ's love that we've been talking about. It shows them that there's something greater behind their action. Another big piece that I've found hard but it's very necessary is how to learn self-denial all over again. Because love often leaves you with issues, questions like, will I give up what I wanna do on Saturday and do what someone else wants to do? Will I give up my time? Will I give up my resources? Will I let someone else get attention rather than me? So it's taking out the, well, but I have to, or I want to, or I don't feel like. It's taking those words out and going, God, what do you want me to do? This is a time when a creative hug, or a kind act, or a loving interaction, spoken, written, posted, videoed, expressed, goes so far. To stop scrolling and start loving. This is a time when words and actions and hearts of encouragement and love must rise because they have such a great power. I like, Bob Goff has an excellent book that you should read called Love Does. And in that book, he has a chapter where he talks about playing Little League and he talks about encouragement and love, and he talks about how he was playing Little League, he's on his team, he's a horrible player, he gets a time where he's up to bat when they're tied in the bottom of the fifth, and he's already two strikes in, and for his last swing, he just closes his eyes and swings and hits a home run. And he runs around the bases and comes back, he remembers that day so much, but he goes, what I remember more is a week later, my mom tells me, and he was young, that he has mail. And it was like the first time he had received mail And he gets this card and it's this card that's in the shape of an apple and he opens it up and the Hallmark message says, you're the apple of my eye. But the message in there was from his coach and it says, wow, what a hit, Bob. You're a real ball player. And he said that those words have stuck with him. A simple message. And he says, what I have found in following Jesus is that most of the time when it comes to who says it, we are all the right people. These words have shelf life. They remain, but they have the ability to shape life. After I read that, I, reminded, I was reminded that over in my office, I have this envelope, 23 years of encouraging notes that people have given me from different churches, different places, I had forgotten about it. Pulled out a bunch of them, was looking through them. Yes, I cried. I'm not showing this to you to go, look how much I was encouraged. But it reminded me that these things all still have shaped me and they matter, but then it made me go, Matt, have you been filling up other people's envelopes? And that was the convicting part. I think altogether the biggest piece is that we need to pray and ask God to increase our love. Rather than asking God to change people to be like us, pray and ask that God would increase our love because you have to remember that Jesus told us to love our enemies. You can only do that by his supernatural power. So I want you to listen to this last statement and then we'll pray and head into Christmas. The invitation of Christmas, when we celebrate the incarnation of God, is to see the face of God in every human person, and those we have seen as lovely, and those we have thought to be unlovely, perhaps even ourselves. It's a time that we remember that God holds us, in all, holds us all in equal significance, that each of us loved and graced no more or less than anyone else. We don't have to be perfect to be deserving of love. We don't have to have it all together or know exactly how to give love in order to do it well. We can be who we are because complicated, work-in-progress people and places aren't where love goes to die. That's precisely where God's love goes to be reborn. And so I pray that love would be born in us in a new way. And I imagine that if we can live this out, That someone in this weary world is going to rejoice and say, oh man, this is just the gift of love I've been waiting for. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the story of your love coming down. We thank you of the story preparing us and heightening, Lord, as we come to the day that we say, Jesus is born. And this changes everything. And God, I pray that you would increase our love by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, whether we are here in the room or we're watching online and we've been watching the whole time or only mere moments, that, Lord, you would increase our love, that our eyes would be opened and our ears would be opened, and we would praise and honor your name by expressing the love of the heavens, the love of our King to the people around us. Thank you, Lord for being the God who loves us. May we be people that love you and love all others around us. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.